Good, we'd like to ask for your kind attention, some considerations on Chittanupasana. Um, as you probably notice, we're gradually inching our way through the Satipatthana territories. Your uh, investigations into Channel 2, the last two days, uh, have hopefully borne some fruit, some perspective on the dimension of the pleasant and the unpleasant in a variety of sense channels, giving rise to both peaceful insights at the same time, maybe some understanding of your own patterning. Um, and the role the experience of pleasant and unpleasant has, both in generating mood and um, emotional states, citta states, and also what triggers and how subjective is and how the same trigger doesn't reliably produce the same amount of pleasantness or unpleasantness. So I wanted to read you what the Satipatthana Sutta has to say on mind. And please recall the notion of citta is somewhat is a slightly challenging notion. Buddhist traditions are not always in agreement in how to read this term. The Sutta tradition has kept the notion of that term almost, one has a feeling, intentionally undefined. Yeah, so when we look at how the Buddha speaks of the citta, when he uses this term, then he seems to be using this term always in a context of development, of cultivation, of purification, of something that is being looked at after a long time. Yeah. It is, I think, the, the analogy of growth is quite telling. It is something that has inherent capacity. Let's say you grow your beans, isn't it? You, so you plant them, then you water, then you make sure that the snails don't get in, and then you loosen the earth, and then when the first leaves come out, you rejoice in this, you do more watering, you make sure that the bugs don't get at it, and then you plant the stalk so that the plant can grow along. So you do all kinds of different things to make the growth of this plant possible. Interestingly, the major thing, namely the growing, you don't do. Your job is maintenance, your job is care, your job is protection, your job is making sure that vitalizing things are there. So fertilizer may be there, water may be there. Um, moderate amount of sunlight, whatever your plant likes is there, but not too much and hopefully not too little. So you're having a say in some of the circumstances, but you're not actually doing the growing. You're not speeding that growing up by pulling on it. Yeah? So there has to be some kind of acknowledgement that this is the same when we practice mind cultivation. You do not actually do the growing. It is not your willpower that does the samadhi or that does the insight or that does the brahma-viharas. Although you can help all these things by familiarizing yourself how your mind works and by choosing uh, attuned and appropriate uh, 
practices. That's what we're doing here. Although you can do that, you can't actually ultimately do it yourself. You have to trust that something in your mind wants to become still. You have to trust in your mind that something in your mind or heart is capable of profoundly understanding. You foster that process. You support that process. You may be even strengthening factors of which you know that are helpful in this process and weakening or uh, not consenting to factors that you know are detrimental to this process. But ultimately, you are in a supportive rather than in a causally productive uh, sort of situation. This is maybe important to know. You can't get enlightened more or less willfully, or you can't get into stillness, or you can't manufacture insight by some clean strategy. While strategies help, I would even venture to say they are indispensable. Let us not confuse the strategy with the cause that makes this possible. The strategy is one condition, but it's not the major condition that actually leads your mind to stillness or to insight. Nevertheless, we try to create helpful conditions. That's why we do things like coming on retreat. That's why we do things like formal meditation practice. That's why we organize this uh, wonderful outfit here so that you have optimal conditions. And yet we all know this is no guarantee that you're perfectly happy, perfectly content, perfectly still and perfectly collected and unified. You know, we all know that the mind has a life of its own and we'll need to meet that mind in a genuine, authentic relationship. Yeah. That is the practitioner's commitment. That's where we need our savvy, that's where we need our discipline, that's where we need our effort to re continue that relationship. Even if that relationship doesn't produce what we think it's supposed to, or even if we feel this doesn't work, or even if we feel it's not as fast as I would like. Pulling at your young bean sapling doesn't make it grow faster, it just it's it's not helpful. So it's necessary to <coughs> understand. The later tradition of Buddhist uh, Abhidharma tradition has understood citta to be not so much um, a continuum that is fostered, but has understood citta to be more a momentary snapshot of the mind's climate. These comp comprehensions are not mutually exclusive by any means. It is just, you know, traditions grow by take, giving particular aspects of a teaching a spin. You know? So the Abhidharmic tradition has emphasized the, um, in one way, the fickleness, the capriciousness of mind, of a citta, and also the multifaceted components of a citta state. So one interesting image comes from the Visuddhi market. It says, citta is like a king that arrives with his retinue. The king never comes alone. So the citta always has mental concomitants accompanying it. This is not a teaching as we find it in the suttas immediately, but it is a teaching that makes per perfect sense. So one of the struggles we have in meditation practice is that so many things are happening concurrently. And one way of sorting this a little bit or getting a better orientation is trying to identify some of the concomitants that go along with one state of chitta.
Before we go there, I'd just like you to read the rather shortish passage in the <coughs> Satipatthana Sutta, where it speaks of contemplation of mind. Um, then we look at those 16 terms in there. Um, and how does a monk abide contemplating mind as mind? Here a monk knows a lustful mind is lustful, a mind free from lust is free from lust. A hating mind is hating, a mind free from hate is free from hate. A deluded mind is deluded, an undeluded mind is undeluded. A contracted mind is contracted, a distracted mind is distracted. A developed mind is developed, an undeveloped mind is undeveloped. A surpassed mind is surpassed, an unsurpassed mind is unsurpassed. A concentrated mind is concentrated, an unconcentrated mind is unconcentrated. A liberated mind is liberated. An unliberated mind is unliberated. Then comes the inside refrain. Um, so he abides contemplating mind as mind internally. He abides contemplating mind as mind externally and so forth. So let's have a look at these terms. Because th this is a bit brittle, isn't it? For something that is so central in our experience, mind heart, emotion, you know, that seems to be a rather terse passage on how to practice with this. If you consider just at what length the sutta goes through the body, for example, with what detail it seems to relish in identifying different stages of decay or different juices that are in our body. And somehow it seems a bit terse, the contemplation of mind. Um, it's one of my questions on my list to the Buddha. Yeah, I have a long list of questions which I wanted to. One of them is, please a little more detail, a little more, uh, a little more detail on on mapping mapping of how to cultivate citta nupassana. Another one would be a real watertight definition of vinyana and the khandas. And a few more things to say on on fear and anxiety and their their relevance to. Yeah, I won't bore you with the rest of the question. <laughs> If you have any answers, well, wonderful, don't hold back. So let us look at those 16 terms. In those 16 terms you find things like, you know, greed, hatred and delusion, that's not really a big surprise. So we are clearly asked, the verb is pajanati, to know, with, to discern what climate of mind we can uh, actually find or be aware of. Is this a mind with passion or without passion? Lust is a, a little bit too simple, I believe. Uh, I understand English-speaking folks tend to think of lust as primarily a sexual thing. So we're, this is not really doing justice to the meaning of the term here. Uh, anything that is con connected with passion uh, would be qualifying as um, saraga, as connected with desire, as connected with uh, a sharpened, quality of wish. Now sometimes this is only very slight. It doesn't have to be a searing desire, you know, but just a little bit of wanting. And sometimes we, we don't actually get the wanting. All we get is the negative aspect of it, the, the experience of deficiency. So even the experience of deficiency has something to do with passion. You know? It just means you haven't gotten what you were passionate about. So sometimes we get what we want by feeling what it feels like when we, when we don't get it. Yeah. That also is indicative of degrees of passion. We're also encouraged to notice the absence of passion. 
Yeah, usually, usually we don't do this absence business. Usually we're so preoccupied with things that are there that we're really bad at acknowledging absences. You know, just to acknowledge who's not here right now yeah, is a lot more difficult than to acknowledge who is here. Because the absence of something needs, we need to hold something that is not immediately sens sensorially. Um, we we cannot focus on that. We need to recall something, and then we need to compare something, and then we to name that. So absences are more difficult to acknowledge in our experience than presences. But the the suggestion is quite clearly. You're also to acknowledge that you're right now not in the throes of desire or in the throes of aversion or in the throes of delusion. So let's make good mental note, acknowledging absences, what's not here. The absence of infernal tooth pain, isn't it? Is this something that fills you with gratitude right now, I hope? Yeah. How is this? How is the absence of tooth pain as a positive experience? Are you really doing justice to this right now? <sighs> Caught, isn't it? So, looking at the other two qualities, uh, aversion and the absence of aversion, I think that would be an easy way to engage with one's mind climate. Just think of dipping in, you know, the litmus paper. It's kind of, instead of having a pH value, you're having an aversion value. So seven is where it's neutral, yeah? So you kind of dip that in, you take the strip out, and you look, okay, no, this mind is actually, it's slightly sleepy, slightly bored, but it's not really aversive, you know? It's quite okay with its sleepiness and with its boredom. This is not so we're not registering on the on the aversion count. We're fine. Um, delusion moha is the most interesting one of the three because it's the least discernible. As I have indicated, you know, generally when we are having passion or when we're having aversion, usually we notice after some degree of intensity takes place of this, we pick up. We know, you know, this is the seething quality I'm all too familiar with, or this is this kind of acerbic mind commenting again. You know, I'm all too familiar with this, so it's easy to recognize. Moha is not easy to recognize. Moha can come as sleepiness, it can come as numbness, it, come, uh, it can come as doubt, it can come as anxiety, it can come as confusion, or as simply disorientation, perplexity, not getting it. It's just, uh, the, what, what was... You know, this kind of feeling. The moha is maybe the most uh, challenging of all this. That's why Buddhist psychology rates moha to be structurally more fundamental than desire or aversion. Only under the influence of moha can we actually believe that following desire or following aversion, we have a better chance to happiness. Which is important. That's why... All three of them are considered to be poisons of the mind. Uh, moha is actually more structurally crucial. That's why all Buddhist mind training seems to squarely aim at uh, doing away with confusion, perplexity and delusion. Only secondary, we are encouraged to curb our passions and to curb our hatred. Um, which, you know, the emphasis is big enough, but the real root evil, if you so want, 
the rule reaver is not understanding, is, is being confused and deluded about the nature of our experience, the nature of how our mind responds to that experience, and the nature of the world we perceive through that uh, experiential apparatus. So that certainly is the most interesting of those three. If you sit here and wonder, you know, where is Moha right now? How much am I befuddled? How much am I embroiled in things I simply do not be able, not even able to discern? Sometimes it just says, there's nothing happening here. And you know, this is Moha speaking, because you know there's so much happening at any moment of the time. If something tells you there's nothing happening here, you know that you can't trust this. You know that basically, or it's not happening. (laughs) This is is Moha talking to you. you There is an unacknowledged expectation, there is an unacknowledged process, and there is an unacknowledged discrepancy between the two. And you realize, oh, okay, can we do that a little more fine-grained? You know, what do I want? Denying what you want is one of the major delusions. If you pretend you do not want anything, you're in big trouble. Because it means you, A, will not get it, because if you don't know what you want, your chances of getting it are really bad. And B, you will be driven by it, but it's kind of under the counter, rather than declared and conscious and consented. So, unconsciousness is not really an option on the path of awakening. That's good. Even if you do not consent to your wants and your desires and your expectations, even you think they're outrageous, immoral, overblown, exorbitant, whatever you may think about this, you're better off to know them than not to know them. Pretending you don't have any needs or any wants or any plans or any, that there is no intention turning into action. Uh, is is a really bad position to be in. The Buddha is pretty much down on this. He has no no patience for uh, the unwillingness to acknowledge uh, volitional energies at work. So let us look at some of the rest. The next pair is interesting. <clears throat> also, the absence of delusion. You know, what would be that like? Clarity, limpidness, transparency. Generally, we would probably recognize this. Yeah? Usually there is a relish. Most of us do experience clarity as something very pleasant. We experience it in spatial terms, we experience it in emotional terms, as stillness or depth. We experience it in terms of light and openness. Usually we would get the absence of confusion or the absence of moha. The next pat- pair is an interesting one. One would look for a a so-called positive, but there is no positive in the next pair. Yeah. The terms are sankitena and uh, vikitena. So is the mind contracted, crystalline, kind of, so the movement is this, shriveled? As, uh, my experience of this particular state is, is probably something like shriveled. It is pulled in, pulled back. It is not permeable. It is not things don't percolate, it doesn't metabolize well, it's not fertile, it's kind of, it's in recoil mode. Uh, Maybe you recognize some of this. And the other 
end of the pair is uh, is vikita, it's scattered, you know, dispersed, dissipated. So this pair doesn't have a good a good a good part. Both opposites are not desirable. They are not working well for making a mind still or insightful. So recognizing the kind of the recoil dimension of a mind or recognizing the dissipation dimension of a mind is good. It's a good way. Likely you know both. You know, we tend to recoil under certain circumstances, feeling tired, lack of energy, uh, feeling overwhelmed, we recoil. Um, sometimes aversion has this recoil effect on us, which is kind of, we don't want to listen, we don't want to feel, we don't want to be here. Just, Scotty, beam me out, please. You know, this kind of, this, how can I get away from this? How can I not engage with this? This is maybe the key notion. The wish not to meet, not to contact, not to engage. Which, as you have probably heard from me, is probably just exactly the opposite of what Sati does. Sati contacts, Sati is willing to engage, Sati welcomes, Sati holds, Sati does not react, but actually meet. So the recoiling, contract, the shriveling mind is a very powerful uh, condition, highly unhelpful. Interesting, the Christian contemplative tradition has something interesting to say. The, some of you may who may have had a Christian grooming, you may know that there are, what are they called in English? Mitizia, the, um, the obstacles of the mind. And one of them is called acedia the sourness of the mind, the, the recoil of the mind. Yeah. It doesn't, a mind that is not malleable, that does not yield itself, that does not receive, and it pulls in, pulls back, and sinks. The other one is very documented. It's just the scatty mind. It's the, the energy going outward and dissipating, unable to hold. It lacks all staying power. It's kind of The end stage of that is what one of the Greek pre-Socratic philosophers calls the 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 dust cloud of particles. You know, the world turns into a dust cloud of particles. You're just kind of flitting from one bitty bit to the next bitty bit, and nothing hangs together anymore. So sometimes our mind does this. It's in a flurry. It doesn't settle on anything. It cannot continue sustaining a relationship to one aspect of an object, but it, instead it just flits from object to object. The next one is an interesting and maybe not very obvious uh, connection of pairs, Mahagata and Amahagata, developed and undeveloped. We are asked to actually acknowledge that our mind is developed or not developed. So we are asked to discern how raw or how cultivated this particular mind state is right now. Is this a rough state or is this a developed state? Is this a state with refinement? Is this a state with culture? Is this a state lacking refinement in culture? How raw or how cultivated this mind is? Is this the beginning of metta or is this a cultivated, sublime, expansive form of metta? Those would be examples. 
you know, even if you have, you know, is this a fairly deluded state or is this just a, a, a fairly okay state, which is nibbled at a little bit on the edges by a little bit of delusion, you know, it's just kind of acknowledging. Basically, it's, it's very simple. It's behavioral psychotherapy. You have to scale the issue, you know. On a, on a scale of 1 to 10, scaling things is quite useful. How deluded is this? <laughs> you know, how angry is this? How greedy is this? How scattered is this? Just to know how bad it is on a scale, say, of 1 to 10. This usually already is quite helpful. It's a quite helpful psychotherapeutic trick. If you have pain, scale it. You know? It makes you a lot more competent in dealing with it. Just saying, okay, on a scale of pain, this is a three, lets you know that you have survived a lot worse than this. It lets you know that on th up to three, you can just disregard and just go back to your meditation object. And as long as it stays at three, you know it's manageable. So you already have cut out one of the major issues with pain, which is fear and reactiveness, because you know you can handle a three. You've had much worse than threes. It's quite useful to be able to identify intensity in terms of, say, this is what Mahagata and Amahagata asks us to identify how developed something is. How stable is this samadhi? How reliable is this metta? How, um, how fluid is this sati? Yeah. Those would be questions that relate to the having become great. That's the word in Pali, if you translate it literally, or not having become great. Learning to identify the intensity and the degree of stability, the degree of cultivation you find. The next one, again, is not an obvious question. It's, is this mind surpassable? Is this state right now, is this a surpassable state or is it unsurpassable? Am I completely free, you know? Is this the mind of an arahant right now? No, it's aspiring, but it's not really the mind of an arahant. No, no. There are quite a few things that I can discern that do somehow not, not seem to be what I have understood arahants to be like. You know? Admitting some leeway there, because if you're not an arahant, it's difficult to know what an arahant is like. But, you know, there are some things to go by. It doesn't have any greed, it doesn't have any desire, it doesn't have any confusion. I can discern some parts that are, you know, wanting things, and there's parts that not wanting things, and there are bits that still murky. So this is definitely a surpassable state of mind in terms of stillness, in terms of insight, in terms of accessibility of the paradigm of the four Brahma Viharas at a finger snap. Just can I turn into an all loving being, all expansive, immeasurable? Um, no. <laughs> no, 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 sober answer, no, <laughs> so definitely surpassable, yeah, thank you very much, yeah, just acknowledging that on a scale of what I can conceive of as being possible for this mind, have I reached the summum bonum of this, or have I read, or is there some air gap at the upper end, yeah, just as a, a little question. Think of the think of the litmus strip. Yeah, just doing thing. Yeah, there's a bit missing there. 
not as a basis for self-judgment, not as a, the, you know, the initial for a, a next round of self-flagellation, yet alone, you know, I've been doing this for 30 years and the Buddha got it in six years, I'm no good. <laughs> Back to the cushion with you. That's not the idea. But just acknowledging soberly, no, I'm not in any delusion that this mind has reached complete freedom. Just because it feels a little good or a little effusive, no, this is not perfect, stable. This is not perfect awakening. This is not completely freed heart here. So I think it's a useful question. The uh, next one again is obvious, is concerned with samadhi. The term samahita, asamahita means is the mind unified or is it not unified? I'm somewhat saddened that Maurice Walsh uses the term concentration here. I, I have great fondness of Maurice Walsh. He helped me learn Pali. He was an inspiration when I was in England. He has become, at the tender age of 77, a monk for three months. And we sat beside each other. And I'm very grateful for his work. But yeah, I disagree with him on translating Samadhi as concentration, I think. For reasons I believe I have said enough about. Think of this. Is the mind unified? Has it coalesced? Think of Samadhi as something it loves doing. Ajahn Chah's image is very, very telling. If you're generating samadhi or practicing samadhi, it's like bringing your buffalo onto onto the field. You do not have to teach your buffalo how to eat grass. Your buffalo, if it's a genuine buffalo, knows how to eat grass. Your task is to make sure that the buffalo eats the grass on your field rather than the neighbor's hedge or the neighboring field. So your task is to get the buffalo onto the right sort of field where it can graze. Don't try to teach it how to graze. Make sure it's on the right grazing ground. So your task as a samadhi practitioner is finding the appropriate grazing ground for your mind. And then you let your mind trustingly develop stillness because it knows how to do that. Because it wants deep down when you stop enticing it with objects of immediate gratification, when you stop chasing it around to seek happiness in things, when you stop doing all this and you allow it to settle with one thing, it will deeply long for samadhi and it will know how to do this. So your task is to bring it there, make sure it gets there safely, make sure it doesn't get lost, it doesn't fall prey to distractions on the way. That's what you do with your buffalo. You make sure it's landing on your on your harvested rice field, yeah, when the grass grows up and the buffalo stays there. Very sweet image in Thailand. Sometimes in the morning you go out as a monk on arms round after dawn, and on the way home you see <coughs> kids usually bringing one of these big buffaloes onto the rice field that they're harvested. So, buffalo, Thai, Thai buffaloes are great things, kind of 600 kilos of muscle with nothing to prove, you know, very tender animals. Um, and so sometimes you see little girls kind of having this huge thing walking in front of them. Girl may have a twig, or the buffalo may have a plastic string going through its nose, and the girl kind of takes tiny little girl takes takes a huge big buffalo onto the field, and the buffalo kind of you know goes along. One little move of the head, and the girl would be gone. But never seems to happen. Buffaloes are very very tender animals. It's very nice to see. They make very soft sounds. You 
kind of look at this huge thing and then he makes this incredibly soft sound. <laughs> you realize this is not what it looks like. So one of these buffaloes led, this is take your little girl and take that mind very gently like a little girl just onto the right pasture to practice stillness and then let that buffalo do the grazing and trust that it knows how to do this. Our question here asks, how is it now? How collected? How unified? How still? How calm? How tranquil is this particular mind? Is there something I can do to deepen into this? Not order it or yank it, or, but lead in a very tender but sustainable and maybe even a little bit insistent way, lead it to the pasture where it can deepen into what it already knows so well how to do. The last question, <clears throat> pair, is, is this mind liberated or is it not liberated? Is it released or not? Is this a mind that has experienced release? And don't just take that at its ultimate level. You know, sometimes we are released from things that have haunted us or have tormented us. And it's good to acknowledge that we are free. You know, when does a grief finally has moved on from from our lives? When have we let go of smoking or of any of our pet addictions or our pet uh, self-judgments or, you know, actually acknowledging that we have moved on? Often we don't acknowledge this. Yeah? We suffer from it, we struggle with it, and then when it slightly decreases, we just... We move on to the next thing. We don't even acknowledge that things have ended. So don't just consider Vimuti as the ultimate complete release from greed, hatred and delusion, you know, and from having uh, broken free from the asavas and <clears throat> finished with rebirth and all this stuff. But being released from small things, acknowledging being free from fatigue right now. Acknowledging being free from hunger right now. Acknowledging being freed from uh, a particular misunderstanding. Those would be also counting examples of Vimuti. So this exercise, um, consider greed, hatred, delusion. Are they there? Are they not there? Is this mind um, uh, contracted? Is it scattered? Is it developed? Is it undeveloped? Is it uh, surpassable? Is it unsurpassable? Is it unified? Is it not unified? Is it released? Is it not released? You know, those are the questions the Sutta asks us. So before you go into big investigations of your emotional life or what actually is packaged in, use very simple questions as an orientation. Just acknowledging degrees of passion, degrees of aversion, and their absence, their respective absence. Please make an emphasis on acknowledging absences. Um, consider confusion is the most difficult one because it doesn't have a clear label. A moha will come up as many different sorts. Lack of sensitivity, lack of seeing connections, lack of energy. Lack of, uh, or presence of confusion, presence of perplexity. 
pleasant, uh, the feeling of not getting something. Those would be all indications. Then more complicated ones like forms of fear or doubt would be also part of the moha segment. The next question, contraction or recoil, shriveled uh, or dissipated, I think are easy questions, easy, very orienting questions. How still is it? You know, think of your mind as an aquarium. And then you just kind of look, there's different fishes in there, big fishes and small fishes. How fast are they moving? Are they kind of sort of koi fishes or more barracuda fishes? Yeah? Think of your thoughts or the images moving in your head as a, a glance into the aquarium. Just to look not what sort of fishes they are, but actually how do they move? Are they placid and gently displacing? Or are they flitting around? Just knowing this would be giving you an idea of the degree of dissipation that takes place or the degree of contraction. If they're all hunkering down in one corner, it's probably contraction. Good. I'll write them out and put them on the board. Yeah? Practice. And if you feel that this is confusing or disturbing you, just go back to the breath. Shuttle back to that which you have cultivated as your anchor. Allow yourself to lose it and come back. This is normal. This is to be expected. This is not what stops you from practice. This is practice. Yeah, good. <laughs>